Slow or like I was down a couple of times and it seemed a little bit uh, a little bit more dead than usual. Yeah, it's definitely still pretty dead. I mean, yeah. like um, you know, like I was driving around with uh, my friend the other day like on Queen Street and it was like a Wednesday, maybe at like 10 a.m. Maybe it was like 11 a.m. Yeah, you you, wouldn't, you couldn't tell that it was a weekday. Like it felt like a weekend. It was kind of like, like yeah. was gonna chill. Um, I don't know if you've noticed like uh, a lot of Queen Street and King Street now have kind of turned into patios. They closed like that first lane, right? Yeah. So a lot of restaurants are kind of sprawling out, and you know, I mean, there's a lot less traffic, right? So yeah, it's, yeah, it's for interesting. sure. I do think that's kind of cool though too. Like uh, the especially with like the King and Queen, like a lot of the the urbanists have really. Uh, talked about how they like that um and they like seeing that like that's what a city should be like you know you can walk it's kind of cool to see like the 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 restaurant scene or the businesses start to engulf the the street but uh i guess it's not exceptionally practical except especially in the canadian climate oh yeah yeah like i mean once assuming things go back to you know full capacity again and back to normal you know it won't it won't uh I don't think we'll continue, right? Kind of temporary thing, but uh, yeah, it is cool, man. It uh, kind of reminds you of like Europe, a lot of the European streets that don't allow cars to go by or, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess a lot of those European cities, like they would have predated cars, right? So like they're not even designed for vehicle traffic. Yeah. And so, I mean, I actually, I lived in Switzerland for a little while and I thought, yeah, it, it is cool, but the, the modern North American city, maybe with the exception of New York is... And maybe like, you know, old Quebec and stuff like that, you know, they're all, but they're all designed for vehicles. So it's just got a completely different feel. Yeah, for sure. You, you mind if I just grab a quick water, water really quick? Before yeah, buddy, do your thing. So yeah, just as a little bit of background, obviously I've, I've moved away from the, the COVID theming, I would say of, of the whole thing, but still just sticking with the Zoom uh, format just to be respectful of social distancing and stuff like that. And it also allows me to get a lot more content done. Um, so, and, and meet with people that I, you know, otherwise would potentially not have the opportunity to, you know, I, I know you and I probably both have busy schedules. So it'd be a tough one to coordinate. Um, so I guess from the top, if you're, if you're okay with it, if you could just give a, a brief introduction of yourself um, for those uh, viewers that, that aren't familiar with you, and then we can kind of spiral out of control into uh, our little investing discussion from there. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, first of all, thanks for kind of having me. I appreciate the opportunity. My pleasure. Uh, to be on the show. And uh, yeah, Quick background about myself, uh, you know, out of school, um, you know, in school, I took, uh, I mean, we went, actually went to school together, I keep forgetting that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the University of Guelph, mm -hmm. uh, accounting and finance, uh, out of school, I, I worked at Deloitte Consulting, um, you know, did my CPA, have a pretty strong background in accounting, finance, and tax. Uh, within about a couple of years, you know, I, 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 I jumped into entrepreneurship, quit my job, and started a P uh, PPC agency. See a paper cook agency, um, you know, for um, it's basically managing paid campaigns on Google and Facebook for for, for clients. Ran that for about five years. We run a bunch of awards uh, awards for for the work that we did, and you know we managed um, some large campaigns. And then after five years or so, started getting into more e-commerce, and uh, with, with um with an e-commerce venture that started kind of growing. 
which is kind of where my focus is today. Uh, along the way, I've, I've invested in, in real estate and in, in startups, uh, trying to get uh, more involved into to startups and, and you know, looking at um, different opportunities in tech and SaaS. And that's kind of where I think my, uh, you know, I'll probably be spending the next at least five years of my career is uh, in that space. And so, so yeah, entrepreneur, investor, um, you know, doing what I can to keep busy. <laughs> good, good, good. I'm glad to hear it. Um, and, and where did you cultivate the interest that you have in real estate along the way? Like, is it, uh, I'm just, just out of curiosity because I, I've noticed on Twitter, you have a lot of good stuff to say about the, the real estate space. So it's been of interest to me. Yeah. Um, I've always been interested in real estate. I mean, it's an asset class. I think that pretty much anyone should pay attention to because it's, you know, it's so big and, and, you know, it's like, it's just like any other major asset classes, stocks and bonds. Um, I, the way I view real estate, I mean, especially as an entrepreneur is, uh, it's, it's an amazing hedge, right? Because almost everything else I do in my, in my career, all my other investments, like, uh, especially in startup are extremely risky and volatile. Right. And, um, you know, they have great growth value and their potential, but real estate has amazing terminal value. Right. And so, um, and then in the long run, it's, I view it kind of as a hedge. And I think any entrepreneur should have some sort of real estate in their, you know, their net worth kind of yeah. thing. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not just talking about your primary residence on you know, like income properties or, um, you know, cash flow properties. Like you, you should have, um, exposure to both in your portfolio. And so, um, yeah, I, I view it as a, it's an amazing asset class, great hedge, it performs well during downturns. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's something that like I, I try to kind of keep growing as, you know, my other stuff grows as well. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's smart to think about it that way. And I think it's, it's been challenging for a lot of Canadians to, to see real estate from that perspective, because it's like, it's not even the alternative asset philosophy here, like the, that you would see in the U S and I guess you're maybe a little bit more familiar with that because of your experience in the, in the tech space. But you know, here it's like, this is a, probably the primary driver of our economy and our GDP. Right. And, um, that's fine. I have no, I have no objection to that, but, uh, but it's hard for a lot of people to see behind it or beyond it. And, and that, you know, when you think about, especially you mentioned principal residents, like a lot of people don't realize that, uh, prioritizing or commoditizing your principal residence and treating people like it's this investment vehicle, it, 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 changes the, the true nature of real estate a little bit. And that's where I think we've seen this like deviation from actual investment uh, fundamentals, like, you know, negative cap rate condos and stuff like that. Um, whereas like a primary residence is a savings vehicle and it does a damn good job at being a savings vehicle. Like where else are you going to get the leverage point and the interest rate that you, that you're achieving on, on, on debt? like that for the average Joe. And, and so a lot of Canadians, especially now we've seen the asset inflation, this is now the, the primary piece of their retirement. I guess um, one of the things that I really want to pick your brain on is, do you see the nature of real estate from that perspective changing as a result of in- innovation, you know, urbanization, work from home, like any really big picture trends that you can see happening as a result of your experience in technology and, and the way that things are changing in the context of COVID, but also outside of it, like even prior to some assumptions that arose even prior to, to seeing this pandemic. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I mean, you know, I don't need to beat the dead horse with, with COVID and, and work from home. I'm sure there's tons of people that, uh, um, you know, have said great things about what, what the future is uh, there. But I think in terms of technology broadly, like one thing that I think still hasn't really happened, but is we're kind of getting there, is reducing the friction in, in real estate. Like I right. still feel like in this day and age, like there's just so much friction to a real estate transaction. Things like title insurance, like with brokers and you know, like like lawyers and everything like that. And I think software. There's a lot of smart people working on different solutions. Um, you know, I, I don't feel like there's like a, a clear winner here to kind of make that real estate transaction that much smoother. Maybe it's something easier, something we're kind of that, that's kind of right under our nose. I think we'll maybe break out next next year or so. But I really want to see, and I really think that maybe the next like five, ten years there will be software to help kind of reduce or eliminate that friction, whether it be, you know, title insurance, real estate lawyers, brokers, kind of make that transaction smoother. Um, uh, you know, have, uh, have like software talking to other software to kind of make that like thing, like, you know, if, it, if you start a transaction, maybe you have like, you know, one company that specializes in title software or title insurance and one that, you know, um, specializes in the legal part of it and to communicate with each other try to get that deal done faster rather than humans kind of trying to go back and forth on a deal, right? Like, like I mean, you, how, how many deals have you done um, where it's just there's so much back and forth and it's like, oh my God, if we could just kind of move this along quicker, we'd be able to get deals done kind of faster. For sure. Um, that That's one thing too. And I think it goes also down to leasing as well. Same kind of concept, but there's a lot of friction in, in leasing too, right? I mean, For if sure. you've got a new, you got to get a new tenant into your building, you know, you got your property manager doing credit checks, employment checks. Like, if there was a way to kind of completely get that done in like one click of a button, like you know, if the uh, you know credit, uh, whatever, whatever the credit bureau can automatically kind of communicate with the uh, yeah. employment thing and just kind of get a, a, a qualified tenant in as quick as possible. Well, I think uh, I think that'll happen within the next like five, ten years. Is, is less friction. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, and I mentioned this to you in a, in our messages about, you know, a couple of pieces of tech that I've been working on for similar things that you're describing. The challenge I would say with real estate is that you're going from like these legacy systems uh, and that are slowly evolving and it's just such a fragmented market. Like I would agree with you that there are a variety of tasks that would be f- done much better by a computer or an algorithm than they would be by a realtor, uh, like especially by a realtor, honestly. And so I, I have this like, but, but the challenge is that there's a lot of protectionism around the function of, of a realtor's job. It's, I would say, especially in Canada, but in, in the U S as well, I think that they're by number the largest lobby group and you can see it with Zillow like Zillow would have been the most disruptive thing to happen and they all they ended up disrupting really was the real estate board and and changing the monetization strategy of it by reallocating leads so it's like and then you see like companies like uh, Purple Bricks or or Comfrey or uh, Property Guys who you know they they have a reasonable dent in the market and they can do decent uh, let's say sub or micro um market share and penetration and like you know there's a town in uh no um newfoundland sorry where the property guy like they don't even have realtors it's just like property guys that's it right um but at scale it's a very difficult problem um and and what you mentioned that those creating an, an efficiency is 
so important because it's a, it's actually a quantifiable number. Like people are like, Oh, what's like the actual market value valuation of a company that could just completely disrupt the real estate transaction. Well, it's like take every single, if, if it's a meaningful enough platform, take every single transaction that's happened in Canada for the past year and take 5% of it. That's, that's the value, right? Like, or, or even if you were to say, okay, we're seeing commission suppression and it's down to like three and a half percent. It's still like, that's a huge amount of money. That's, that is a, like real estate commission is functionally a drag on the market, right? Like you could argue that and, and, it, and it's, yeah, it's due to be disrupted. It's just not easy to disrupt. Um, totally agree, man. Yeah. And also like, it, like more transactions and faster transactions mean quicker price discovery too. real For estate sure. prices kind of adjusting. Yeah faster to market, um, market in the economy. So I, I think it'd be a net benefit overall, but you're right. With all, with all these legacy systems and, you know, protectionism in play, it, it has been an uphill battle. For sure. Like, I mean, even, you know, we had built a booking engine a couple of years ago at, at, like, this is like five years ago, I built this booking engine. Right. But it was like, that was premature at this point. And now you're seeing like showing time and I can't remember the other one. Um, I guess broker Bay broker Bay seems to be doing probably the biggest, in the Canadian market, like where they're kind of doing everything, but it's still like a legacy system. Like it's all done through email, like no push notifications on your phone. There is like, now you can tap to confirm it just came out like because of COVID and stuff. But I think like it, it's accelerated the adoption of tech a little bit, like, cause you're seeing people having to use DocuSign and stuff like that. But because of, at least in, in the, in the Toronto or GTA market, the trap integration of everything. It's like, there's, there's limited vendors. There's no like actual, there's no free market around tech involvement in real estate. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one. I'd, I'd love to chat about it a little bit more actually. Like, you know, some of the stuff that we're working on, like, you know, automated valuation. I, I have no objection to, to talking about it publicly actually, because I think that there are things that are so challenging to solve, but that, and then also a patch that we have, we just built and we're in beta with, uh, with Facebook and Instagram to basically put like, you know, there's Instagram shops. They have that now for real estate and, and nobody's using it. Like if there's the backend exists, I'll show you, we can go, we can go into it later, but the backend exists and nobody's built the patch to automate the, the front end. So just like little things that, you know, I mean, Facebook could very easily take a run at Zillow uh, and they have, they have the captive audience. Right. Um, and most realtors use that, that platform to promote their listings anyway. I just thought it was interesting. Um, yeah, one more thing actually just around the yeah. topic of like, like, uh, uh, kind of trends and kind of, you know, what's going to get disrupted and whatnot. Uh, I was actually having a conversation with someone on Twitter the other day about, um, um, a company called invitation homes. Okay. Uh, have you heard of them in no, I the U S they're very unique and we have nothing like this in Canada, but they're, they're massive. They're, they're a large company. They're publicly traded 30% of them, their own 30% by Blackstone group, private equity company. Okay. And they literally buy, manage and rent single family homes in metro areas. And they've now done this at scale. They're at a hundred thousand homes. Nice. And so the, the conversation was going around like, like basically if this actually like, you know, starts to get larger and larger. And even, you know, if it starts to, if an invitation home kind of decides to kind of grow in Canada, you effectively put a floor on real estate prices. And, 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 and you know, you might end up pricing out your, you know, like you said, for your average mom and pop or, you know, individual, they're kind of way to get real estate is a single family home to like live in or even just rent out, right? 
And if you have these large companies kind of buying up all these uh, uh, profitable, you know, um, you know, depending if the yields make sense in these large metro areas, like what's that? That's I think a trend that I think might actually end up like being bigger than most people think that it would. Mm-hmm. I think large companies will actually, they, you know, and they they buy and there's there's pros and cons to it, right? Because they actually end up adding to the supply as well because they actually construct homes from scratch, right? Um, but obviously, there's some major cons about a large company like owning like single-family homes in like you know metro major metro areas. So it's something, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to, to think about where that can go. It is actually that is a really. I just looked them up while you were mentioning it, and I mean it's an interesting concept. And I remember, I guess it was like '08 uh, when when the crash happened, and and Warren Buffett had sort of said like, "I'm massively bullish on on." single family homes in the U S and, and, you know, if there was a way to, to purchase those at scale, I would do it. And, and all these models evolved basically just like pandering to, to Buffett. And, and I know he has involvement in quite a few of them, potentially that one as well. Um, Dude, I literally thought about that exact same interview when I saw that. Like, yeah. I'm like, it wasn't Warren Buffett talking about this. And then meanwhile, yeah. invitations, like I got, we're doing this. Yeah. Like, okay, cool. Like, Done. Let me do it. Yeah. Watch this. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think the challenge in Canada is the the competitive landscape there. Like with, uh, you know, you're competing with an ir- an irrational consumer, right? Like economics doesn't even really work in, especially in like the two premier markets in Toronto or in in Canada, Toronto and Vancouver, because there are other people out there. Will like that model that you just described, as you mentioned, depends on a yield, and in Toronto, there are people who are buying without depending on a yield. So capital appreciation is fine, but also like it doesn't really work for at scale for a company to be pumping more money into the asset to keep, to hope for and pray for capital appreciation. I can't see you satisfying uh, shareholders like that, but there are sub markets in, in the GTA that, that, that could work where you can go get your 5% plus capital appreciation. Um, and, and I've seen, you know, similar models to that try to succeed, but I, it, it would be curious to see, whether or not that could actually take shape. I think that we need to see some sort of reality check with the Canadian market. And I think that, you know, I I have this curiosity around it, right? Because it's like, if people are buying to lose money on some of these assets, you know, even like some of the the subdivisions up in York region in 2017 or condos now, um, there has to be an ulterior motive, right? And, and BC has been pretty strong about cracking down on money laundering. And, and we seem to have just forgotten about that discussion in, in Ontario. So I, I just have a curiosity around whether or not that's actually as rampant as some people might like to uh, assume. Like when I think about negative cap rate condos, I'm like, some, there has to be another reason for somebody who's smart enough to be a multimillionaire to want to do this, right? Anyway, I just, that's just my, uh, my, my little political injection there um from uh, i guess we can use that to pivot too because like when and, and you mentioned you know you bought real estate as a hedge but i do i, I most of the investing stuff that i've seen you post on on twitter i really really liked and and i and i think that you have a brilliant mind towards that stuff so when you what what role does real estate play in your portfolio like are, is it beyond just the hedge is it more from an income perspective is it just purely a hedge or is it like do you do you, are you hoping for a little bit of capital appreciation or maybe uh, add value or future development? Like, do you buy with intention beyond the hedge? Yeah, good question. Good question. Um, so the way I kind of view real estate is, yes, income play for sure. Obviously, um, 
uh, you know, having profitable uh, income properties help uh, you know, source of passive income, right? Whereas you know, as an entrepreneur, your income could wildly fluctuate, right? And 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 and, and so that that income piece there, it, it, I mean, again, it kind of serves as a hedge, right? But you know, compared to a lot of other people in real estate, I, I think I'm very different in that. A lot of people are looking for value add for sure, like looking to kind of buy a property, kind of fix it up, like renovate, refinance, and kind of hold it. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I, like that's not my strategy at all. Um, nice. Because I just don't have, I just don't have the time. You know, I, yeah. I, 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 and, and real estate's not really my like primary focus. Like I, like the way I look at real estate is it, it's a savings account, and it serves as a hedge. And so like I, I prefer to buy a property that's you know almost fully priced in, right, and, and, and it, or it's operating pretty well. Uh, it's profitable cash flow, good tenants, good location, and then I can have like one, my, have one property manager kind of manage, you know, that that property. And so, um, kind of go back to your question, um, yeah. So this is a hedge, a little bit of income, and I'm I'm not really looking for crazy value add. Maybe some cosmetic stuff on the exterior, um, you know, but I would never do like, like a full kind of you know gut job or reno. Uh, you know, it's not my expertise, uh, and it's not really uh, something I want to kind of spend my time doing anyways. And so. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of, does that make sense? Uh, yeah, no, it does make a lot of sense. It's, I, I like it. I like it. it and it, you're right. It is, it does deviate from that. I, I guess it's cause you, you're, and maybe I'm, this is an assumption, but cause your exposure to the tech space, I guess you see a lot of the, the way that people operate in the U S and it sounds like your mentality is a lot less Canadian towards real estate. Like most people just think of it as like, I don't even know anymore but it's like you know it's this commodity that just like goes up in value infinitely and you know and I, I don't know the whole thing is confusing to me honestly as somebody who really appreciates the fundamentals of of investment and 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 i'm in the trade of real estate so it's kind of it, it's been difficult for me um it, it, it's one thing like another thing i'll add to is like um yeah. so people talk about like dollar cost averaging into stocks yeah, like yeah. meaning like just keep buying an index yeah, yeah. like regularly like every percentage of your paycheck away, which is a fantastic strategy. But I also think people should be dollar cost averaging into real estate as well. Meaning yeah. like eat every year, buy a really quality property and like, like kind of like just keep buying, like, like yeah. hold for a really long time. And so it's like one of the things I think that, uh, um, everyone should be doing is kind of do like, you know, quote unquote dollar cost averaging. Into yeah. Real estate. I have the exact same philosophy, man. So I'm so glad you said that. And it actually, it goes in nicely to one of the things that you wanted uh, me to discuss, which was sort of like, how would I advise people to, because, you know, you and I might have income that, that is able to do that. But I would say the average consumer that is interested and, and, and as the timeline, like, you know, if you're 30 years old, you can, you could buy 10 properties by the time you're 40 and then retire maybe. Right. But, but most people, they don't feel like they can achieve that. And so the question is how, how, do, how do they, um, you know, if, if you have a small amount of money and, and, and I th say that there's a couple, it really depends. Most people have a hard time thinking about real estate outside of urban cores. Um, so the first one, my, my first example would be don't buy in an urban area or don't buy in even a, you know, a, within proximity to an urban agglomeration, like it doesn't have to be in the greater golden horseshoe. And, and, but, but because especially most of the clients that I interact with young people, um, are there and they don't, they're detached from the idea of suburban or rural areas. They don't, it, it, you don't even think about it. Right. 
but there's so much and and my conversation with Francis Donald um last week made made this exceptionally clear to me that you know there's so much that our economy needs to do to diversify beyond housing and now you're hearing a guy like Elon Musk talking about how he anticipates a silver scarcity you see or sorry a, a nickel scarcity you see silver and gold two resources that Canada can do really well accelerating like crazy in in this economy and whether or not that sustains doesn't really matter what what matters is that there are entire economies, micro economies in this country built around the extraction of those resources, Kirkland Lake, Sudbury, you know, these are places that uh, you think about, um, oh, no, I can't remember the name of the place, uh, in, in the north, north of uh, Alberta there, um, a lot of my buddies moved out, uh, Fort Mac, I guess, Fort Fort Mac, yeah. you know, just boom during oil times. And now obviously like that, that whole province is seeing an economic struggle as a result, but I guess the question or the f- philosophy that I have is we could see a similar patterning around employment, migration, et cetera, w- as the finance sector and tech sector of the Canadian economy could see some headwinds for the next five years. And we start going in search of things like there's a ton of engineering jobs up there, like good STEM careers in around the resource extraction and, and uh, timber as well. Like, so, that would be at number one. And that was a really, really long winded way for me to answer that question. And then number two would just be basically become a shareholder in, in a project and work with like basically an investment group. Um, if you want, if you still want the urban exposure, but you can't afford it, you know, buy into a, a good property every couple of years. And that's again, like something that you and I could discuss on or, or, or off screen, but I would say there are a lot of opportunities. It's always tough to sell equity without being like a, without playing the risk there, but there are de- if you you talk to you know a well-established realtor uh, or lender or whatever in in the GTA real estate space, they can probably strap you to a deal in a in a LP position pretty easily. I would say. So that that's my my sort of answer for anybody listening who who doesn't have the means to go buy a property in Newmarket or or downtown Toronto every year. Um, when you when you think about real estate, I guess more on your on your um the hedge piece what do you because i think one of my jobs when i'm working with investors is analyzing what is the downside risk of of real estate specifically and i i honestly do see a little bit of headwind maybe not so much for the suburban areas now um but but just for the macro um do you when you look at the real estate space, where do you see not only risk, but opportunity? Like what, what's your outlook on the next one year, five year, 10 year horizon, um, you know, beyond the sort of always goes up philosophy, which I think is relatively time tested and true. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard to really speculate anything that happens at one to five years, right? I mean, you're, 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 anyone's guess is as good as mine it's yeah it's, it's hard to always you know it's hard to really say like, like whether you know markets will go up or down like timing the market you know whether it's stocks or real estate is, is you know most most people can't do it right so I mean, if you if you look if you take a, a 10 15 year time frame Um, you know, sorry, I'm losing you here. Your biggest pop- thing is there. 
sorry. Um, can you hear me? I can now. Yeah, I don't know my connection just lagged there. Just wondering if you could repeat what you just said. Ten to fifteen year time frame. Yeah, I mean, like if you look at if you take a real if you look at real estate and you have you know ten to fifteen plus like right, time rate time frame mm-hmm. like the risks are pretty small. I mean, like mm-hmm. like you said, it's time tested. I mean, asset inflation is there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with, with with interest rates where they are, um, you know, I, I really can't see anyone really losing money on real estate. You know, if, if you have that kind of long period of time, right? Like, um, but within like under five years, like, I don't know. Like, it's every anything I say is pure speculation. I mean, there there could be a yeah. correction, there could be a crash. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, I don't feel like we felt really the like the like the after effects of COVID yet. Like, no, for like sure. I felt I felt. The COVID kind of happened, and it's like all the economic indicators, except for maybe un, un, the unemployment rate, seems like they've bounced back. I mean, like you know, I'm looking at like different like stock indexes and like you know like all, all different like earnings figures, and it just doesn't feel like we've kind of like I feel like there's a, there's got to be an aftershock that's gonna happen of all these people not working for like four months and potentially laid off forever. Business is kind of closing down, and so. Um, so, I mean, like, that's probably a risk that there will be some sort of, like, like whack to real estate prices in the next, like, five years or so. I'm not really sure. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, uh, in terms of opportunities, um, I, I think you're right, man. Like, I think you're, 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 I think we were talking about this the other day. You were telling me how you got to go outside of the urban areas. I think people will sprawl out more, definitely. I've had a lot of friends that have, you know, now who are, like, diehard, we got to live in the city like forever kind of thing now they're like you know maybe we should start moving out you know to more of the countryside right the cottage area kind of thing it's yeah. like it's a better now that i can work remotely like why not right so i think that'll definitely be a trend you know real estate will just fall out a little bit yeah it's tough uh given like the the planning environment right now like with the places that grow act aimed so much at density um, in Ontario, like, I think they're really gonna have to reconfigure that thought process. Hope I, I, like, I actually really am hopeful for the urban area. Like Toronto was, you know, really just reaching its, its, you know, breakout point as a city, uh, on the global scale. And maybe, you know, now with New York suffering so much as a result of like a lot of the, the sort of decimation of the office economy, it, it, it could play a bigger role. Like, and with like the Fed claiming that they're willing to backstop a lot of these um, distressed assets, like I think when you talk about the macro office vacancy, and I guess the the way that the macro affects the micro, if referring to Toronto specifically, like uh, when you start to see work from home and office vacancy and things like that, um, I think that there could be a lot of short term challenges for but but ultimately i actually i think in the fullness of time you know we're gonna have a longing for this this normal life and whether or not maybe like i don't think i don't see a a, i don't see people being like oh we got it wrong with this whole like city thing like you know now let's just go all go out and live and we'll just leave these places vacant like whatever i i don't see that really happening but but i do think it's really challenge changed the way that we think about work and work-life balance and quality of life and where we live and and you know there were a lot of people that were making sacrifices around those things uh to be in close proximity to work so they could get ahead and then maybe enjoy it later the other piece is like millennials haven't started having kids at scale yet like at every every millennial parent that i know has moved out of the city i'm not like 
saying that that's a, a systemic trend, but you know, that's something that we also need to be aware of is that like most of us are going to experience either biological or physiological, psychological changes that'll make us want to live differently probably in, you know, a couple of years that, and, and that has, might not have been priced into the urban economy, especially the urban real estate economy yet. Um, we'll see. I, I'm very curious to see how it all plays out. And I, I, I think about it constantly. So, um, Me too. so have you, have you invested in, in property? Like I'm actually right now in the middle of my first deal, um, out like way outside of, uh, of the GTA. Um, I'm trying to get some exposure to like, I'm really, really bullish on, on the resource economy in Canada, Sudbury, um, even Kirkland Lake, to be honest with you. And, and I mean, Kirkland Lake, you can go buy a property at a 10 cap for 70 grand, right? Like, yeah. So things like that, like, um, I've just been trying to figure out a way to formulate an investment thesis around places that, you know, nobody's ever even heard of, um, and, and, and maybe bring it to market. Um, have you, have you done any exploration outside of the GTA? Are you still, I know when you mentioned properties to me, you know, you're pretty focused on, on the suburban environment. Just curious as to whether or not that's changed since we discussed it last. Honestly, it hasn't changed. Um, you know, it, it, it's intriguing. And whenever you talk about it, I'm always like, wow, that's crazy, man. Like, that's, yeah. uh, like there's like, uh, um, I, I kind of fall into that category that you mentioned earlier. People kind of taking that real estate and just kind of urban metro kind of area. Yeah. yeah. Like, um, even though like, you know, my holdings aren't even like downtown Toronto, I still consider it pretty metro, right? It's, it's a quick subway or quick train down to the city. Mm-hmm. I haven't honestly looked outside the GTA and I know there's probably a ton of opportunities. Uh, I mean, you're, you're probably way well suited to talk about that than, than, than I am. <laughs> yeah, maybe I just, uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of re- really on the, in the infancy of my discovery of that. Um, but I just, I haven't felt like anybody's really doing a good job at, at, at creating a scale. And I know that like, you know, in the U S like there's a lot of these sort of like D you know, like, like your, your C or D class investment uh, funds that, kill it like absolutely kill it i mean they're probably getting smoked right now um but they you know they did really well and i think that canada hasn't really like when you talk about like this you know massive scale or systematization of of purchasing i i i do think yield first when it comes to that and especially when i think about these far out areas um you know the you don't have to manage downside risk in a place like Kirkland Lake. Like the property is not going to lose value. It literally, you're literally, if you're buying like a house for 70 grand, you're literally buying it at negative $250,000 land value. Right. So there's like very little downside risk. The, the risk is liquidity, right? It's like, okay, if this thing vacates or if I can't rent it and I'm not going to be able to, like it's going to take me a year to sell the property. Right. You don't, how, how much can you afford to be stuck with, a hundred of those. Right. right. And it's, and, and then when you also talked about like that, uh, um, invitation homes and creating a price floor, one of the other things that I think that a lot of people discount for, and the reason I'm in touch with it is because I have such an interest in affordable housing is the price floor right now is set by welfare essentially. And I've been trying to do a lot of research around this and like actually made some proposals to, to academia to try and create a, a real model around how that works in Canada, but basically the baseline amount of money that you can get as a non-working Canadian is the same everywhere. Right. So 
And, and so you're starting to see this drive till you qualify effect because once you get, once you don't have to con- can participate in the economy and need to be close to employment, you can functionally afford to live ev- anywhere, but you can't afford to live in places where there's scarcity of housing. So right. that's where you're going to, uh, from my perspective, you know, you're going to see a lot of unindexed pensions or pensions that aren't sufficient for, you know, people who are on CPP only. And a lot of these people aren't going to have to, or aren't going to be able to stay close to the city. Right. Mm-hmm. And so to me, when I think about the mi- migration of, and, and the, the further that we exacerbate the wealth disparity that's happening as a result of asset inflation, the more demand that there becomes for affordable housing. Right. So that's, that's like the, that's sort of my philosophy on the, on the, the ruralization of the Canadian real estate economy. I really hope I'm right. Cause I'm going to be throwing some big dollars out over the next year or so. So it's kind of a hail. It's a big hail Mary, but who knows? Hey man, big, uh, big, bold moves. That's what's going to pay off. Right. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, is there uh there was a couple of things that you wanted to, to chat about. Um, I have them in front of me here, but, um, is there anything that we, that, you know, we discussed that, or didn't discuss that you, you wanted to, I did want to touch a little bit on prop tech, you know, given your experience, but I don't know how much like just experience in the tech space, but I don't know how familiar you are with a lot of that stuff and the role that it's playing sort of in the COVID world around office towers, et cetera. Um, prop tech. I, I honestly, I, I don't, I don't have any uh, direct investments in, in prop tech or anything All like good. that, but, but one thing I do see, uh, I think I, I'd be pretty bullish on is, uh, so I, I, I do think work from home is going to be like a real thing. Like I think like, you know, it's not going to be like black or white, but there's going to be like a lot of people that um, are, are that will be kind of permanently working from home afterwards, like offices yeah. being kind of closed down. So what I do see happening is like I'm bullish on the, the side gig economy. Yeah. So, like, so platforms that enable people to earn an income outside of their work, because now you got to think about people are going to be home. And they're not going to be under the watchful eye of their employer. And which means that, you know, they may realize that, holy, I can get my job done in like three, four hours, five right. hours, and then have like rest of the day to kind of work on my side gig. So, you know, there's companies like Substack um, that do the paid newsletter. You know, obviously this is Shopify's of the world, uh, Etsy. Like there's this, there's, I think there's any, any startup that's kind of interest that is kind of enabling people to earn an income outside of their work. I think, I'd be bullish on. I'd be definitely yeah, seeing them all kind of going places. I think that'll be a trend. People having side gigs. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a really interesting note given the the current economy that I didn't really think about. So I appreciate that insight. Um, yeah. So in in, the, in regards to the real estate stuff, you had mentioned um, you know just uh, you know some some investing lesson. I'm just gonna pull it up here in the in our Twitter message thread. But uh, just like I guess we we went over the how can young investors do the sort of dollar cost averaging philosophy that you mentioned? And I, I would agree. I think one of the things that though, that a lot of like people always talk about real estate and they're like, Oh, you're never going to get a uh, 90 X or, or sorry, a 20 X leverage or 25 X leverage in uh, anywhere else. And it's like, well, you kind of can, you can go get that leverage in gold, uh, you know, based on juniors, the risk profile is pretty well the same. But the other thing that people never talk about, when we're talking about low interest rates is your effective annual rate, right? Like this is a really important calculation because like you're paying like 40% of your principal or your, your, your mortgage payment into interest in your first like year of your mortgage. Right. So you're not like, okay, it sounds great that you're paying like 
2% interest or whatever, but it, you know, when it's amortized over, so they apply that to the entirety of the mortgage and then they cram it into five years. Right. So it's like, yeah, the, your capital cost is actually not as enticing as it sounds on paper. Right. So that, that's just one thing that I've always seen dismissed by people. And that's why I, for me, and the one reason why I mentioned, you know, buying in cheaper areas where you can get a greater cash on cash return is for people who, are young and just starting out. And I had this conversation with a colleague of mine who I'm going to probably be posting um, shortly. I just was like super, my thought process, my head was all over the place. I don't, I don't get interviewed well, I, I guess I'm, but, but anyway, um, you can boost your, like one of the important parts is, okay, you've got, you've got the price piece, but you've also got the income piece. And those are the two important parts on how you can qualify for a mortgage. If you can't change the price piece, you got to change the income piece. And one of the ways that you can do that is go buy properties in places where you can eventually have a big enough portfolio that you can now use that income towards your income. So mm-hmm. let's say you want to invest in the GTA, but you can't right now. Well, don't, that doesn't mean you don't have to have any exposure to real estate. It means you should go get exposure to real estate in the, for the time being. So you have your hedge against values going up. So they're not running away from you faster than you can grow your income and you're growing your income because you are investing in 10 caps, right? So now all of a sudden you have a 50% uh, margin above your 50% profit margin and all that goes to your, to your uh, accounting. And then when you go to apply for a mortgage the next year, your income's better. And then the year after that, and it compounds, right? And then in five years, now you can buy a way better property than you ever could have in Toronto, right? And, and maybe that's when the, so that's the thing that I, I've always had a hard time. People, so many people want to wait and it's like, it's not timing the market, it's time in the market, right? And I think you kind of said that in, in, in fewer words too. So that's sort of like my, yeah. my big thing. And it kind of covers, that's, I would say like the biggest, that's the biggest lesson that I learned. And, and also the, the biggest mistake that I see a lot of investors making is they're just like, oh, if I can't afford it in Toronto, I'll just, I'll keep saving up. And it's like, well, no, that price is running away from you fast. If your income's not growing or if you can't, if you're not a super saver, you might not ever be buying that property. So figure out another way to make money with your money in the meantime. Don't just let it sit there. Even if it's in stocks, like whatever, right? So. Yeah. No, that's a good, uh, good way to put it, man. Like I, I always get, that's a common question I get a lot from followers. Yeah. I never really know what to say other than like, um, you got to find, I got like, you got to find ways to increase your income, right? Yeah. I mean, like it's, uh, I hate to say it, that's kind of a, a, a it's, it's not what we want to hear. But it, it, you know you can you can run your side gigs, for example. Yeah. Way a lot of ways you can kind of make money outside of your day job, and like focus your weekends and your nights on figuring out how to make extra money to kind of save up for that down payment kind of thing. That's what I tell most people. Um, there's also I, I've seen people talk about creative ways of getting into real estate too, like like um, you know making like deals with like seller financing or trying to get like a, like a deal with the developer management or getting investors kind of thing, like other creative kind of ways to kind of like, you know, yeah. wedge their way into real estate as well. If they can't, if they don't have the money. Right. And so um, you, you can do that too. Obviously all those are a lot more, uh, very time consuming as well. But, um, but yeah, you're right, man. I mean, it's, you gotta get, I think I agree. It's better to, you know, buy real estate and, and wait and wait to buy right so yeah for sure for sure um yeah and and i guess uh you know i i think there's other ways to do that like a lot of people just they don't they don't focus on like the passiveness of it right like i remember a couple of years ago it would have been a while ago like before the big boom of bitcoin like i bought a couple of antminer s9s right and i was like i was just like this is a way for me to basically buy something that i can and and 
maybe I should be careful saying this, but like, you know, I could basically expense as like technology for my office, which I actually ultimately didn't end up doing, but like, that was my thought process. It was like, okay, this is tax deductible that I can convert into basically non-tax deductible currency. Right. Um, and so, but, but regardless, it's like, okay, so back then before the boom, I think I paid like 1400 or two grand maybe for an S nine brand new couple of them. And like they, and before the boom and before the hash rate went up, it was like producing, like they've paid for themselves a couple times over. And now like the electricity trade-off isn't really that good, but still, I still run them and, and it is what it is. Right. Like that, but that's a truly passive income stream. Right. And then it's like, or I'll throw some money at like at some e-com businesses, you know, that, that friends have started or whatever. It's like, yeah, just give me my yield. And like, yeah, I'll throw a little bit of money at that. I would say, and you, you mentioned like, you know, finding more income streams. My parents and, and our, I think our parents' generation, boomers, like they were all about focus, right? It's like, do your job well and, you'll, and, and then save your money. But th that, I don't think that works anymore for young people. And you say, like, I, you always see these like memes on, on, on like the motivational Instagram and Twitter pages. Like the average millionaire has like seven streams of income or whatever. And it's like, okay, like that's cool. But, but like, what's an actual feasible way to do that, right? So for me, it's been like the crypto mining worked reasonably well you know, and, and again, I had a decent market timing and then yeah, buying like cheap cash positive rentals with low risk, like with good long-term tenants in, in areas that I can afford has been good. And then also creating efficiency around. And that's one of the things I really wanted to discuss with you as well, like automating tasks, hiring employees to do some of the stuff that I'm not that good at or hiring. I, I hire a ton of freelancers, um, you know, to, to do a lot of that stuff, calling, uh, follow up, warm calls, whatever to, just to keep like, and so that's, I guess in the piece where you, you had asked, like, you know, if I could put my entire net worth into one company and I don't want to sound like an egotist here, but like, it would be my own honestly right now. And, and that's functionally what I'm doing, right? It's because like, there are people who are way smarter than me, but I'm paying it, it, unless I could get it at, at a fair value. Like if I get buy into like Tesla at a super fair value, not inflated value, I would, but, and that would be the answer or there would be other answers like Amazon, whatever, but you're buying them at, you know, 50, 70 X PE. Right. So, um, my, I know I'm buying into my own business at a fair, very fair value cause I'm controlling it and it's a function of my expertise and my work ethic. Right. And I can, I can very much control the ROI. So, um, yeah, yeah I guess that's, that's kind of maybe, maybe a, a shitty answer to that question, but, uh, but, but yeah. I mean, it's a good answer. You what would you, yours be? Like, how would you, how would you, allocate like what would your portfolio look like right now your personal and then and 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 as comfortably as you are obviously i don't want to dive in too much to your personal finances but and then where would you be putting your money right now if you could um i mean i mean i, I same as you i mean my, my own businesses right i mean like it's yeah. it, like I, I asked that question meaning like uh like what what like large company would you be so bullish on but yeah that, that's cool that's a good way to answer it too like well like i guess that then i would just i would be hunting for like a, a obscenely high dividend company or like a a company right now that that's valuation is still smoked where their dividend is high based on you know what it was before covid and i have the i have the faith that their ability to recover into that dividend uh is strong so like um I bought some carnival during the crash. I've actually bought a little bit more even. Um, and like, again, that's like a, that to me is like a 10 to 20 year hold. Right. Um, even, uh, movie theaters, although I don't believe that much in their recovery. Um, but the dividend yield is good. Like you're at, I think like some of them are at like a 7%. I bought New York mortgage trust when their 
uh, dividend yield was like 27, no, 37%. And like, it's been revised down to like 7%, but if they ever get back up to that, you know, like six bucks in their dividend yield, then based on what I purchased it for at like a dollar or something, I can get that 20% yield. That's like a good way to manage the downside risk. If the trade pays for itself after a year of owning it, you're good, right? Like, or a couple of years of owning it. So, um, I guess that's that answer, but I'm curious to know yours. Sorry. So I, I apologize for interrupting you. So no, no worries. So, I mean, like in terms of, I mean, you know, if I had to choose one company, obviously I would invest in my own, right? I mean, yeah. uh, um, that, that's like a, a no brainer, but all, oftentimes you don't see opportunities to invest in your own company or you end up kind of, you know, taking on projects in your company that aren't positive ROI. Um, you know, it's, okay. Before I go to get to like what public company I, I, I'd invest in, I'll tell you a story that, um, you know, is an example, I guess, of investing in my own company. But it, okay, I looked at it as just sheer luck. But my partner, looking back, said, well, you know, you just invest in your, yourself in your own company and get off. But about a year ago, um, I, was, uh, so I, was, I was an LP in a long, short equity uh, hedge fund. Okay. And I had been for about, about five years. It's been quite a long time. I didn't really have any um uh reason to kind of cash out although i was considering maybe you know shifting it more to passive type investing i mean you know those mm-hmm. kind of fund fees are quite high and reserve returns are pretty kind of like average and so anyways about a year ago um my, my e-commerce company got into a pretty serious cash crunch and uh needed to be bailed out uh pretty quickly right and so um and uh you know it was a combination of a, of a couple bad um decisions and uh, you know inventory. So it's really easy to get into a cash crunch when you're, when you're running a physical goods business. And so, anyways, I needed to inject about uh, it was close to about a hundred thousand dollars into the company. And so, um, you know, I, I was looking at like, should I put you know cash here? Like I was trying to figure out what should I liquidate. So I ended up actually just liquidating the the, the, the position in the in the fund, the hedge fund, and putting all that money into uh, my my e-commerce company. Now at the time. That was it, was, it was such a rough decision. I was like, oh my God. But I put, I took money out of like a hard asset, like stocks, right? Um, mm-hmm. And put it into such a risky asset, like my small e-commerce business, right? And like, I got, like in my head, I was like, I'm going to lose all this money. This is insane. Like, like there was like, the, there was no end in sight in terms of like the, the bleeding. Um, fast forward a year later, um, you know, I, I, and by the way, when I, when I invested into the e-commerce company, I was, I was charging interest, right? Like a, like a, a normal interest rate. Fast forward a year later, the hedge fund basically blew up in, in, in because of COVID. It dropped 40% in a month and it hasn't recovered today. It's still down 40% roughly. And my e-commerce company actually was able to pay me back all, all, all the money within that year and mm-hmm. interest, right? And yeah. so I was, when, I, when I was explaining this to my partner, I was like, I just, I think I just got lucky. Like yeah. this was just like, like I, I'm like, I can't, like, you know, I just happened to like, yeah, COVID happens, fund blew up. But he said, "Well, I don't think I don't see it like that. I look at it like you invest in your own business. You yeah. you know took control and you're able to kind of it, it paid off. And so so I don't know if that's a if that's you want to conclude that as luck or you know whatever. But I mean, you're talking about investing in your own business. That's a good story of it actually paying off. No, it's so. great. <laughs> actually, I think it's a good example also of investing in things that you understand, right? Like I I I. I there are so many companies I would love to get a better understanding of, but like, I just don't have the, the bandwidth right now to dive in. And like, so I'll throw a little bit of money at it and whatever. Um, but 
you know, ultimately I think you, you pulled out of something that probably was, you know, you needed somebody else and you were paying them serious fees to manage and get you exposure to that investment thesis, but you took it out and put it in an investment thesis that you understood very well. And, you know, and, and I think that that's an important principle. Like that's a, that's a Buffett principle as well, right? Don't invest in things that you don't understand. So anyway, Absolutely. I'll let you continue on to your, to your large cap or, or index traded uh, company. If I could choose one public company, it'd probably be a toss-up between either Amazon or Google. And I know the valuations, you know, you can kind of mm-hmm. say they're crazy and, and you know, like whatever, Ford multiple. But honestly, like both of these companies basically control like an unregulated monopoly. Like there's yeah. nothing that's going to stop either of them other than government regulations. And if government, when the government does step in and end up kind of breaking them up into different parts, I mean, you still have, I mean, a lot of the individual parts are still pretty damn valuable. If you had Amazon and it got broken up into like AWS and it got, you know, their e-commerce was here and like all the other stuff was here. I mean, each one of their individual parts are all pretty damn profitable and viable on their own. So it'd still be like an an amazing investment, even if it was broken up. Um, You know, they, 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 like, like think about think about the amount of infrastructure Amazon has now between their cloud services and between yeah. their e-commerce. That is really hard to replicate, man. Like mm-hmm. It's like like without uh, you know something fundamentally changing in the way we consume information or, or goods or whatnot. That's not going to change. And Google, on the flip side, same thing. They have the Google Cloud cloud service that's that's kind of rapidly growing uh, year over year. But they have their search their their their, their, their search function, um, which is like, you know, like miles better than anything else out there, right? They've kind of achieved mm-hmm. this monopoly of search just by having an incredibly good product, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have net- network effects or economies of scale or really anything like that. Each year, the algorithm keeps getting better and better. And um, I think the way people look at Google is a, um, is, uh, is, is a bit different than the way I think I look at Google. Like a lot of people look at Google as like a company that has a bunch of traffic and they sell ads and they're like digital yeah. ads, like a sales company. I don't look at it like that at all. It, I look at it as they own the only road, the most valuable road on the internet, which is the road that has what I call monetary intent traffic. Basically people yeah. looking to buy stuff yeah. um, they're browsing. They control, they have a monopoly on that road and they're charging businesses a tax to use that road. It's, they're they're, they're, a, they're The traffic operator. cop and the toll booth. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. so it's a very profitable business. It's interesting. There's a, there's a tie in there, like on the real estate space as well, that we've been trying to work on like the product. Uh, cause I, I think that both Facebook and Google have uh, a pretty solid, and I'm going to have to run here. I think I heard my, uh, my 12 o'clock uh, coming into the house, but um, the um, I think that the, the tie in from the traditional uh, MLS system into f- Facebook and to Google with their shopping, like, especially with Google, like if you search like homes for sale in, you know, Toronto, you know, you like, if you search like a, like a t-shirt and it shows up like all those shopping ads and like, I'm assuming those are affiliate links from Google hasn't been done yet with, with property. Um, and the same thing with Facebook shopping and Facebook shopping just did build that integration. So that's honestly something I'd actually really love to, uh, to work on with you if, uh, if it's something you're interested in, especially on the Google side, cause the Facebook one we've already built the patch. Um, we're just in beta with it right now. Like we've, been rejected by like five or 10 different um, pages that we've tried. They really want to see like a business page, like not a personal page running this, this patch. So a lot of it's just arguing with Facebook support, um, which is, I'm sure you've uh, dealt with. It's not too exciting. Oh, brutal. Yeah. Brutal. So um, yeah. Anyway, uh, honestly, like I feel like I could have this discussion for another like 
two hours. Um, but, uh, unfortunately I do have a hard cap here and I want to be respectful of your time as well. Do you, uh, is there any, anything, um, that, that you want to discuss before we sign off? And if not, um, where can people reach you if they want to continue this conversation or have any questions about some of the stuff we've talked about? Yeah. I mean, uh, not, nothing else to discuss. I think it's a, it's a great what you're doing. I mean, yeah, your podcast and all the digital stuff, the content that you're putting out there, you know what I mean? Like uh, thanks, a lot of people have this perception that real estate is kind of boring and you know, don't really want to get into it, but you're, I think you're making it fun. So thanks, good man. job. Good thanks. for you. Um, to contact me, uh, you know, you can probably hit me up on Twitter, JVast digital yeah. uh, at JVast digital. And yeah, I can put I, it in I, the show my notes. DMs, yeah, my DMs are open and cool. I, I reply to them at least every day. So Amazing, man. Okay, cool. Yeah, I really appreciate what you're doing as well, man. Like, honestly, you've, uh, you've really helped to shed light on a very confusing world of, of uh, investment in, in the full spectrum, I would say, for young people. And, uh, and I think that, that that brought a lot of value to me. Like, your feed has been super valuable, and that's why I was very excited to pick your brain. I know you did want to talk a little bit more about the macro stuff, but maybe we can, we can save that and, and do a, we can circle back in like a month or something and do another episode. That sounds good to me. Okay, buddy. Thanks a lot for your time, man. I All really day. appreciate it. I'll, uh, I'll flip you over a, a DM as well about the couple of things that we did uh, mention on here and see if we can maybe get working together on some of those things. Sounds good, Daniel. Look out All right, for buddy. It. Thanks again for your time. Thank Take you. Care.